There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Ann Wilson of Heart is ready to rock the Birchmere in Alexandria, Virginia on Saturday night. I spoke with the Rock and Roll Hall of Famer in 2017 and again this past week and compiled the highlights. Miss Wilson, thanks so much. You are a rock legend. Thanks so much for taking the time for us. Well, thank you. Obviously, you and, and your younger sister, Nancy, went on to form Heart. But talk about, like, when you guys were, were young girls. How did you guys get into music? You know, I know you sort of bounced around, you know, the military brat thing. But how did you guys fall for music together? We uh, we came from a, from a musical family. Our parents both loved music and always had it on in the house. There was never a time, really, when there was silence in the house. There was always some kind of musical ambiance going on. All different uh, genres, you know, and different singers and classical music and opera. They weren't really into country music, but they were into jazz and um, folk music and Ray Charles, you know, Edie Gourmet and Judy Garland and Harry Belafonte and all the, the singers of their time. So we got all that, you know. So it was pretty easy when we got to the point where we wanted to start playing guitars. It was pretty easy just to, you know fold into our own music. You know, I'm four years older than Nancy, so I guess I was 13 when I got my first guitar, and she was eight or nine, and uh, we shared a bedroom in our parents' house, and so we would just sit on the beds and play guitars together and just learned how to play one to the other. I don't think either one of us ever took lessons as such, but um, we just came up learning together. Do you remember some of the early songs that you played acoustic in the bedroom together? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it was stuff that you probably weren't even born yet when it was out. Stuff like Cherished by the Association and Paul Simon and um, Beatles songs and stuff like that. Hey, that that's the best way to practice with the Beatles. Yeah, and so it went from just us playing guitars together in our bedroom to us wanting to get in front of other people. First, our parents' cocktail parties, I guess, and then our parents' our parents' church on Youth Sunday. We got to go play then, and that pretty much cemented the idea that, especially I, wanted to be up in front of people and stage performing. And just it just started to evolve from there. One thing just sort of led to another, and we started wanting to have a band. And, and then when we got old enough, we met people and formed bands with them, and it, it just opened out into heart. You ultimately sort of settle around Seattle, right? Take me into um, the Army, White Heart, Hocus Pocus, some of those early ones. Well, I wasn't in it when they settled on the name Heart. I wasn't in it yet. Um, it was a, a local Seattle band around with uh, Steve Boston and Roger Fisher and Don Wilhelm and a couple other guys, and they were called the Army, and then they changed it to White Heart after Tales of the White Heart by Herman Hesse, and then they shortened it to Heart. 
and they were a you know they were a bar band around Seattle, and I was not in it yet, but they lost their singer and their drummer at one point, and they put an ad in the paper, and this guy that I was in a band with uh who played drums, the two of us answered the ad, and we were hired and uh, at that point, we were working with Roger Fisher and Steve Fossen, and uh, we renamed ourselves Hocus Pocus. And we played for a few years, like maybe three years, under that name around Washington State and Montana and Oregon and uh, up into Vancouver, B.C. a little bit, until I met uh, Michael Fisher, who I fell in love with, and I followed up to Vancouver, B.C. I quit Hocus Pocus and went up to Vancouver, B.C. to be with him. That was way back during the Vietnam War of the 70s. The guy who was I was with at the time was a draft evader from the States. And uh, so we lived up there. And that was good for about six months. And then here come all the guys from Hocus Pocus up to Vancouver because they really wanted to have the band with me in it. So we reformed it up there and we renamed it Heart because from their old Heart days, Heart was penciled on all the gear. And that's why we called it Heart. Let's run through a couple of the songs. So Dreamboat Annie, you know, it spawned Crazy on You. Do you remember where you were when you guys wrote that? Crazy on You? Yeah. Um, yeah, we were living in Canada, just on the north side of the border there, in a place called uh, Point Roberts. I remember singing the lead vocal in the studio on that, and it was one of those ones that just sort of lit up. Uh, the vocal just lit up, and I found places in my range I didn't know I had. And, uh, you know, we weren't big. We didn't even have a record out. We were just out there hanging out like hippies, writing songs and stuff. And we wrote, I wrote Crazy on You, and... Nancy and I wrote Magic Man, and, uh, you know, the one thing led to another. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember where you were when you, when you first heard it, maybe on the radio? Because those songs were massive. Yeah. I First time I ever heard Magic Man or any song by us on the radio, I was coming back from the grocery store with my dog in the back, and uh, I heard Magic Man come on the radio, and it freaked me out so much I had to pull over. Because <laughs> I couldn't concentrate, you know, I was too excited. Spilling the groceries everywhere. Clean up on aisle six, yeah, which is right. a magic man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. It's All right. Awesome. It was a combination of the groove of it. Um, the guitar sounds are very uh, in your face. And the story of the song is a leaving home song, which a lot of people in that age group that I was when I wrote that were going through that, you know. And uh, uh, individuating and talking to their parents and saying, no, I'm not going to be your way. I'm going to be my way. And uh, I think that's why it stuck. I think people just like the independence and the freedom of it all. That's so cool. All right, then moving on a little further down the line, uh, Barracuda was off off Little Queen album. Where? How did that song come together? Barracuda was on Little Queen. Yeah, uh, we were, uh, we're talking about heart. Uh, it was going on. Uh, getting bigger then, we were um, starting to warm up for other people then and get into a real, you know, music industry type of a world then. Yeah, meeting some real sleaze balls along the way. So those were the Barracudas? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the extreme level of unchecked sexism that was going on in the 70s then, we've come kind of some way away from that now, but back then it was just unbelievable. And it was a screed against that. I love how it reflects where you are in your career. It's great. Moving into the 80s, I love What About Love. What, what do you, why do you think that one works so well? Oh, it's a good song. It's just uh, written by some folks up in Canada. and uh, It's got a good old 70s 
sing-along chorus to it that um, when I first heard the demo, I heard the chorus, but I didn't like the demo because the demo singer was just like a whiny thing. She was just a whiny bitch, and I just went, God, this is a victim song, and that, that's really not me. But then when our producer convinced me to sing it and put my stamp on it, then it lost that victim that victimhood thing. And I think it came out great. It's a it's a good, strong song. I like it, too. When you guys wrote Alone, what was uh, driving that one? Well, i got to be honest and say we didn't write Alone. We, we did Alone. It was given to us. It was written by Tom Kelly and Billy Steinberg. A couple of um, L.A. songwriters who also wrote True Colors and, and uh, I'll Stand By You and a bunch of other of those great big bombastic ballads of the 80s that were hits for other people. And um, I like that song, too, because it's it's just clean and pure and huge. And uh, it's just like this human cry of frustration that I thought was really great. It's just such a powerful one. When you started doing more solo stuff, was that a hard thing for you to do at first? Yeah, at first it was kind of hard getting people to understand that heart's all right, heart's still all right, but this is just me being me and uh, stepping up on my own. Actually, Nancy's doing that. She has a little solo thing going called Road Case Royale. And so we're both just, you know, taking some deep breaths and, you know, doing it. Like a new lease on life for me. Um, I felt that I I had, by... 2016, I felt like I'd sort of come to the e- the end of uh, what I knew how to do with heart music, and I really needed an outlet to expand my horizons. So I put this band together called the Ann Wilson Thing, or Tot, as we used to call it, and um, we went out and just played every little hole in the wall we could find, and I did whatever songs I wanted. I did, you know, Peter Gabriel stuff, and just all kinds of, you know, pretty sophisticated things. And in so doing, I learned how to sing a whole different way and, uh, you know, add to what I already knew. So it's a great exercise for me as a singer. It just really helped me expand. A couple years ago, we got you guys here for the probably what might be the best Kennedy Center Honors performance we've ever seen when you guys did the Zeppelin tribute, Stairway to Heaven. Um I think, I mean, if you watch it back, you guys brought Robert Plant, Jimmy Page. You guys brought them to tears. Take me into, like, setting up how you're going to do that and planning for that choir to kick in for the end there. Man, I mean, that that thing was so amazing. Yeah, that that was a great night. It was, and that's, um, like, think of who was out in the audience. Uh, President Obama and the First Lady and uh, Stephen Colbert and uh, David Letterman and Yo-Yo Ma and Buddy Guy, and just all these amazing people, Dustin Hoffman sitting out in the audience. And, uh, it was quite a night. And, of course, the Led Zeppelin people. And um, uh, no pressure or anything. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really sublime. We uh, It was back in December, so the White House was all dressed for Christmas, and we got to go over there earlier and, and for a reception and all that kind of stuff. And then come back and do the set and then have a big dinner and the, with uh, sitting at the table with the Led Zeppelin guys. And <laughs> it was a dream night, for sure. Totally. What, uh, what, what does it mean that you brought them to tears? Like, did they thank you afterwards and say, you know, oh, my God, that was incredible? Yeah, Plant told me that he, that he really didn't like it much when people tried to cover Stairway to Heaven because they 
usually just kind of wrecked it. You know, they they didn't do it justice. But he did like our version a lot. So that that made me relax because the the main thing that I wanted to do that night was just to please those guys. Yeah. Really, it was all about making them feel good. The actual night that we were doing that, the way the stage was set up, and Zeppelin guys were up in the boxes, so we couldn't see them close up from the stage. So we didn't know how they were reacting until we watched it later on YouTube, like everybody else. And uh, it was really great. It, it made me feel good that they were they were moved. It really did. Well, maybe maybe one day soon, hopefully rather than later, maybe you guys will be on the other end of that and someone will be covering one of your legendary songs. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, maybe. yeah, you never know. I was glad. I think it might, might have even been the year right after that um, Kennedy Center performance you guys did that you guys got inducted into the Rock Hall, right? Yeah, in fact, in fact, we heard about that we were going to be inducted into the Rock Hall that night at the Kennedy Center Honors. You know, it was it was all just coming thick and fast there, you know. <laughs> Maybe that was the final, you know, straw that broke the back right there. They heard your performance. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. great. But how, I mean, how huge was that to get in? Because, I mean, I, I, it seemed almost, to me, overdue. But I'm glad you finally got in. But just talk about how big of an honor that was. Yeah, um, the, the uh, process of being inducted into the Rock Hall of Fame is very political and uh, inside the music industry. And it basically comes down to... Um, a voting process and um, all kinds of other artists and journalists and everything all vote. If you pass all those tests and jump through all those hoops, then they'll induct you. And they've always had kind of like a female, um, they're slow to induct women. Uh, so, yeah, it did take a long time, but it, it's an honor, and I'm really glad that it happened. Why do you think it is that they're slow to induct women, especially women rockers? I mean, you'll get, like, singer-songwriters in sometimes, but, like, the hard rockers like you guys, I mean, there's, I feel like there's others that you'd think would be in, like, I don't, I, I can't think off the top of my head, like Pat Benatar or something that aren't in. You know, why do you think that is? And, and do you guys think you can help blow the doors open on that a little bit? I think that uh, the voting body for the Rock Hall is very opinionated, <laughs> and they, if they like you and they consider that you've made a cultural cultural contribution to the rock scene, then they will induct you. But if they think you're fly-by-night or that you're a pretender or something like that, they won't vote for you. So um, I don't think it's, it's um, you know, purposeful misogyny or anything. I just think that percentage-wise, there just aren't nearly as many female acts, and uh, they're held to a different standard. Um, I vote every year. But, you know, I think it is getting better just for them to have, uh, have inducted people like Joan Jett and Joni Mitchell and Patti Smith and, you know, those are real rock people <laughs> who who just happen to be the other gender. I mean, I think they're starting to get it. And I especially don't hold myself responsible or me and Nancy responsible for kicking the doors down for women. I think it took a lot of different people. Janice and Grace Slick and Stevie Nicks and Susie Quattro and all those people back in the 70s, and Blondie, like, you know, people like that who who went outside the box. It, it took all of us. Awesome. Well, Ann Wilson of Heart, rock legend, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.
I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.